Welcome to season two of the Unscripted Medicine podcast, a podcast about living and learning at the UC College of Medicine. On the show, we discuss everything from board exam prep, how to excel in your clinical clerkships, and also how to do the little things required to thrive in medical school. Check out the show notes or our website for more information, helpful links, resources, and more. Please connect with us via email or on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Without further ado, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome back to the Unscripted Medicine Podcast. My name's Kevin, and I'm going to be hosting today's episode. Today, I talk with Dr. Dan Skinner. He is an Associate Professor of Health Policy at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. He's an Associate Professor in the Department of Social Medicine and teaches from the Central Ohio campus in Dublin, Ohio. He teaches and researches on health policy, co-leads the Osteopathic Profession's Health Policy Training Program, and as of January 1st, 2021, edits World Medical and Health Policy. Dr. Skinner is the host of Prognosis Ohio, a podcast that dives deep into health policy topics that are relevant to Ohio. For these reasons, we're really excited to have him on the podcast, and I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Stay tuned. I am on the line with Dr. Skinner. Dr. Skinner, thank you so much for joining today. Oh, it's great to be here. We are here today to talk about health policy in medical education. Dr. Skinner, can you tell me more about your role at Ohio University and the health policy issues that you are particularly interested in? Yeah, sure. And uh, again, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the podcast you all are doing at um, your medical school is, is awesome. And uh, I, I think it would provide value to medical students everywhere. So I'm glad that we're opening this up a little bit and you're, you're allowing an outsider <laughs> from the medical education world to kind of come in and, and chat with you. So yeah, I, I teach at uh, Ohio University's College of Osteopathic Medicine. Uh, I'm actually located at the Central Ohio campus, which is in Dublin, Ohio. Those of you who don't know, that's kind of just, it's a suburb kind of northwest of Columbus. And I am an associate professor of health policy. So my job essentially is to teach medical students about the nuts and bolts of health policy, health systems. I'm a political scientist, so obviously health politics is in there. But, you know, it's gone in different directions. I I like to explore things where I am and stay interested. So that kind of takes me where it takes me. Sure. Being in central Ohio, are there topics that you've come to take a particular focus on? Yeah, well, I should say, so I'm a New Yorker originally. And, and I think one of the things that has taken some time is just to learn about Ohio. It's it's a, a unique place. Uh, it's quite different from New York in many ways. The policy climate is different, although in some ways quite similar. So, you know, uh, in central Ohio, you have the the likely suspects. I mean, Ohio is a state of paradoxes, right? You have some of the most, you know, highly esteemed elite medical institutions in the country here. You know, Cincinnati Children's is routinely ranked at the top of the list. Uh, nationwide Children's as well. Other children's hospitals, you know, not too shabby, but still we're, you know, toward the bottom of the list for infant mortality. So what does that mean? We have the Cleveland Clinic. But we also have, you know, rampant cardiac disease and diabetes throughout the state. So 
what does it mean to have these amazing healthcare institutions, but not necessarily be able to translate that to health outcomes? And I think that's something that always puzzles me about Ohio and certainly provides me a lot of opportunities to talk to my students. Yeah, that's that's a, an interesting point. It's something that we learned as medical students here in Cincinnati, you know, being so closely associated with Cincinnati Children's and talking about the infant mortality in the city, um, because I always assumed that that was something that, oh, well, you know, Cincinnati Children's is going to get the sickest kids. And so those kids are going to be more likely to pass away. But what I learned is actually, at least it's my understanding that 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 calculation is done from like the mother's area code, basically. It, it has nothing to do with the fact that really sick children end up coming to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. It's, it's really who is local to the hospital itself. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, um, one of the first presentations I usually give to students at, you know, at, the, at the Dublin campus um, at the beginning of each year, you know, first year medical students, is just to show them what zip code means. And I mean, you know this, and I'm sure all your listeners are, I hope, are, are pretty well aware of this at this point. Um, you know, I live in the Grandview section of kind of, you know, to the, just to the west of Columbus, but I can drive 10 minutes on my bike south of here and infant uh, and life expectancy will drop almost 20 years. So, wow. you know, I mean, I feel, you know, fantastic physicians can do amazing things in our world. Um, and other clinicians and our healthcare system has to be good, but our healthcare system is not going to necessarily do anything about that. So, you know, I think that's one of the exciting things about medicine right now is that we've been focusing on the health profession's workforce, but right now we understand that it's the social determinants, it's these, you know, um, you know upstream factors that we really have to take a look at. Sure. And so you teach health policy and, and those topics to the medical students. I just want to ask you, why is it important for that to be a part of medical education? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think it's important. Of course, it's what I do and it's the way I look at the world. And I'm in a department of social medicine, which, you know, is comprised of fant my, my fantastic colleagues who do things like, you know, who are psychologists, anthropologists, medical sociologists, historians, you know, and other uh, epidemiologists. You know, medicine is changing in a way where we realize that you know, we, we need to deal with issues in a preventive way, but also it's the systems and the structures of inequality, it's racism, it's, um, you know, food systems, housing. These things are, you know, the next horizon of actually impacting health outcomes. As I mentioned, I mean, we have these fantastic healthcare institutions, but they're kind of up against the wall. Like, you know, you can't keep taking the approach of, you know, waiting for people to get sick. You have to get ahead of that. And that requires a whole social rethinking of how we even approach the question of what does it mean to be a doctor today? One of the things that I've heard going through training is that in the U.S. we have excellent sick care, but in terms of health care, we're falling behind. No, no. And I think that's right, except that I think the real story in the United States is disparity. So there are you know communities that have fantastic prevention in place. I mean, you know, whether it's nutrition or exercise or access to, you know, comparatively better air quality or whatever. And then there are some places where it's the the opposite. So, you know, in some ways we have a system that is the best in the world. In other ways we have a system that is on par with lots and lots of countries that most Americans would be shocked to find out that we're, you know, similar to. 
So disparity for me, I mean, that's the conversation I always want to have, which is it's very hard to paint with too broad of a brush when talking about American healthcare. You have to look at the details. You have to look at context. Yeah, even you know zip codes, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, or or even or even more fine grained than zip codes. Um, you know, when you do uh, research, like some of the research I've done with my colleagues at Ohio University and, and elsewhere, look at specific street corners. You look at uh, intersections where uh, you know pedestrian safety is an issue, or where there's a known a home where drugs are prevalent or gun violence. Um, you know, even a zip code is not fine grained enough to really start to do the work of you know, earning people's trust or getting them to come outside or being able to address their various issues. So when you are teaching the medical students, what topics do you typically cover? Well, you know, it's kind of changing at Ohio University at, at the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. We we have a new curriculum. It's actually not so new now. It's about, I think we're in our third year, uh, but it's still kind of rolling out up through the four years of medical education. Uh, so a lot of this is a moving target, but the nuts and bolts, uh, obviously, I, I want my students to understand things like the history and the function, the basic functioning of, of Medicare. I want them to understand Medicaid, especially in Ohio here with Medicaid expansion, especially during a pandemic. I want them to understand the importance of these programs, but also the the policy dynamics and the challenges around them as well. When I was hired in 2014, and my first semester was the beginning of 2014, we were in a completely different place, right? Um, my job, as I saw it and as it was kind of presented to me, was the Affordable Care Act. Now, that's still true. Understanding the Affordable Care Act, I mean, <laughs> despite the Trump administration attempts, the Affordable Care Act is is hanging on, although there's a Supreme Court case lingering right now, obviously. But that said, with the election of Donald Trump, you know, all of a sudden it was like, okay, well, we're doing something else different now. And, and, and that's kind of how policy is. One of the things I've heard from medical students is, and you know, I, I mean this uh, affectionately, the, kind, you know, the average medical student, in my experience, doesn't really want to invest in, in policy. That's not why they got into medical school. There are lots of students who are very interested in this, but you know, it takes a lot of time to, 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 to learn a field like that. They kind of want to know how do things work and then be able to roll with it. But the problem with policy is it changes a lot and you need to get comfortable with change and you just need to watch it happen. You need to participate in advocating for your patients and for populations, but you can't kind of just learn it and then roll with it. You know, I mean, in some ways, I guess that's how some people think of something like anatomy might work, where you you have that knowledge. You know, of course, you always want to be learning new things and new understanding. But there, you know, policy is so fluid, and the way our government is today uh, makes that even more so. Yeah, I, just even hearing you talk about it, I'm like, what do you mean all the rules change when uh, you know a new administration comes in? It, that kind of gives me anxiety. I think so. Um. <laughs> or, or when you know, and this is really important for your uh, listeners, you know, when you go off to residency, if you're going to residency in a different state, you know, so much of healthcare operates on the state level. You need to learn a few things anew when you do that, and I really do advise you know, when, when students know where they're going for residency, that they take a little time to, to read up on the basic health outcomes. Um, if they know, you know, they're going to be in a specific location, look at maps, you know, look at some of the epidemiology out there, just understand what's going on around you. And, you know, every time you move, you have to do that work again. 
But that's not a bad thing. I mean, once you learn how to do that kind of analysis, then you know how to do that kind of analysis. But definitely context is really important. When do you get to sit down with the medical students? At what point in their in their training are you with them? So again, that's a little bit of a, a moving target. Typically have been able to give some of the very early presentations, which I think some of my social medicine colleagues and I, uh, we, we share in doing that, you know, kind of orienting the students at the beginning. I mean, every college, every medical college has a basic question to ask, which is what kind of physicians do you want to train? Uh, what distinguishes you? You know, we're an osteopathic college that might factor into this in some way, but also we're a college, um, you know, at a public university with a certain kind of mission that we're supposed to fulfill. In our case, uh, primary care and underserved populations within the state of Ohio. So orienting them at the beginning is is one thing. And then really, it's just we, <laughs> right now with the, the changes in our curriculum, there's a shifting going on of kind of where do the different pieces go best, you know, and while you, you know, we, we want to make sure we're covering all the bases, where things go, I think is, is a constant conversation. I'll give you an example. I mean, you know, we have a case-based uh, curriculum now and, you know, you have a case that has an occupational issue or you know, something like that. Well, that's a good time to talk about. We, we had a case with a truck driver, for example, and I got a little bit into some of the uh, the union stuff around truck, uh, the trucking industry in the United States, <laughs> but also the policy around things like occupational health, uh, the Bureau of Workers Comp, you know, just those kinds of questions. So I think we do let the cases drive a lot of that. But of course, I want every student to know the basic touch points of the system, and I want the students to know cost, access, and quality, and the different kinds of framings around that. Um, I will also just mention in the fourth year, I currently teach um, a, a healthcare uh, clerkship that's a two-week focus on policy and systems. So that's my chance at the end to kind of make sure that these students, most of them have already matched. Most of them are kind of, you know, one foot out the door. Um, <laughs> You know, and it's a, a chance to sit down and, and to 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 talk with them, and, and a lot of them say, "Well, I really wish I knew this four years ago." You know how medical school works, right? You can't do everything all the time. Yeah, that it, that's a really cool experience to to be able to have as a fourth year student uh, here at UC. We start medical school with a physician and society block. It's it's a three week block, and we learn about you know, relevant topics, social determinants of health. We learn about basics of insurance. Uh, it's a really good primer. And it's also, it's also just kind of a great way to ease us into medical school. But I find that now as a fourth year student, some of that content is a little bit removed. I've, I've learned a lot since then. Um, and my brain has finite space, I've found. Um, and so, uh, honestly, I would really benefit from like a two-week intensive refresher course to and, you know, to go over relevant areas um, in six months, I'm going to be a practicing resident physician. Yeah. Um, there are going to be things that are really important for me to know. And, and I think the fourth year is just such a perfect time to do that. You know, well, depending on, you know, where you go for residency, I'm seeing, and actually I do give quite a few talks to residency programs. And actually I'm noticing that that's an increasing thing. Uh, so I do think residency programs are creating, you know, brown bag uh, events for their their residents to talk about things like you know the recent supreme court case or and just you know topics 
and, and I welcome those opportunities, but I also, and I, I don't know all that's out there. I, I happen to know a lot about the osteopathic world specifically, and there's, there's kind of a track in our world. And, you know, there's a, a residency program and policy studies for, uh, well, for residents, right? It's called the TIPS program. I am the co-director of the National uh, Health Policy Fellowship, which is for mid-career physicians who are out of residency. So, you know, if we start, if we do some during, you know, medical education is at the undergraduate level, more in the graduate level, and then those who really want to do this can avail themselves of those opportunities later. Um, I, I think it's really important. And I, and I think when you think about something like health policy, I mean, one of the things is just paying attention, just knowing how to read here and there, follow the issues that are important to you. It doesn't need to be, you know, a huge commitment, but just paying attention so you know, you know, what's going on in the news. Um, and there are a few ways to do that. But then also, you know, those who want to formalize it a little bit more, that there are a bunch of opportunities for doing that. So you don't have to feel like you need to do it all at one point. And I find that with medical students, their anxiety is so high about not knowing. You know, I have students come into my office, you know, at least in pre-pandemic days when I had an office. And they say, I, I just, I'm so embarrassed. I don't know about, I don't even know what the Affordable Care Act really is, you know, <laughs> and that's an opportunity to, to, to do what I'm supposed to do, which is be a teacher. I'm, I'm curious. It sounds like you have interactions with clinicians at every level student, resident physician, and then physicians who are well into their careers. Yeah. Do you find that there are certain topics that, are of particular interest to students or, you know, is that different from what the residents are coming to you to talk about or um, the practicing clinicians? Yeah, I'm hesitant to give too firm of an answer as though I really have have the 360 degree angle on this. It, it, it's my sense though that, you know, here, here's a problem. And, and, you know, I train physicians, so I will just say at the outset, I, I like physicians a lot. I have a lot of affection for them. However, um, most of, you like the however, right? Yeah. Most of what physicians know about healthcare, and I mean the non-medical parts, like the healthcare systems, um, whether the ACA is good or you know Medicare, or whatever. Most of what people historically have learned has come from other clinicians, uh, and, and that worries me. I mean, any kind of an echo chamber worries me, and. And that's also true of health policy people. Like sometimes we need to talk to more clinicians about what their experiences are. But it's it's increasingly the case that health policy is becoming driven by broader concerns. I'll, I'll give you climate uh, change as a great example. I mean, if you read the history of physician involvement in health policy, you know, and I always push Paul Starr's book, The Social Transformation of American Medicine. If anybody ever wants to invest in reading a, a nice chunky history that has a lot of the, it, it will change your life because you realize, I mean, the AMA in particular, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's history is particularly nasty um, in, in putting physicians' interests before the interests of patients and populations, you know, always at the table, always shutting down Medicare or, Medicaid, uh, you know, trying to stop anything that they saw as affecting physicians' bottom lines, even when those things would have been really great for American patients, for mm -hmm. Americans. That's loosened up a lot. You know, you see physicians advocating for Medicare for all kind of stuff now. You see certainly the climate change groups that are pretty well organized. So I think they've become less stakeholderish. That's the way I like to put it. They're not just at the table arguing for 
tort reform to protect themselves from lawsuits or to you know their their bottom lines they're they're often increasingly thinking about patients in these public discussions i mean physicians have every right to look after things that help themselves or secure their careers or loosen you know lighten their debt load or whatever it might be but that's not all that policy is and i, I i'm really optimistic by what i see coming out of the residency programs and the physicians, this generation of physicians who are doing more of that. I have to say, I, I definitely have this sense that as I've gone through medical school, there's just been an acknowledgement of, yes, we train medical students and residents to treat patients in clinic. But it's also important to consider what is happening in the patient's lives when they're not in your clinic office. Like they have all this other stuff going on. And that's probably way more important to their health um, on average than the things that you're actually doing in clinic. I, I think that that's been definitely acknowledged as I've been a student. Yeah. I would like to even suggest, you know, when we talk about Hippocratic fidelity or, you know, what are your obligations as a medical professional in this, you know, profession that has all this kind of like good feeling around it and, uh, you know, just is that your Hippocratic obligations, I, I believe, extend to your political activity, to your civic activity, including how you vote, voting to accomplish uh, you know, low taxes or, or whatever. That might be what you want to do. But if that guts healthcare systems, if that guts insurance access, if you, know, uh, you, you might be a deregulatory person, but if that endangers patients... I think you're violating something pretty basic. We don't tend to think about the kind of relationship between these things, but I think we're starting to realize that you, you can't just break off little pieces of the world and say, well, I'm a fantastic physician who cares about my patients, but I vote, you know, this or that, you know, we, I, I want to encourage people to think about how these pieces all fit together. Absolutely. If you had unlimited time and resources with your medical students, what policy topics would you like to explore more with them? Gosh, it's such a good question. I um, And any unlimited time question is so <laughs> because like I could ask that of a, a clinician be like, if you had unlimited time with your patients, what would you do with it? No, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know if, I, if we, because we're not even trained to think that way because we're so focused on um, you know working within constraints. I guess the the thing I would love to do, and, and and I'll put it this way, one of the biggest problems, or one of the biggest limitations, um, in training medical students is actually under is not even undergraduate medical education. It's pre med, you know, the pathways that students go through before they ever get to medical school. I mean, I've talked to some of these advisors. You know, they tell you to take biochem, biochem, you know, and and all this is super important, right? Anatomy and all that. But they steer them away from the humanities in ways that, frankly, I feel like I'm constantly, and I, I, I know my colleagues, some of them share this sentiment, that I'm kind of trying to repair in some ways to say, you know, you know you've been so focused on you know, this, the, these modes of clinical understanding, as you should be, because they're super important. And I don't want to be confused you know, saying those things aren't important. But you know, your, your sensibility for the world, your humanity, your understanding of history... I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and a hundred years ago, the influenza pandemic, and there are great histories out there that really, if you read these histories and take them seriously, they change the way you think about the whole moment. And I don't see medical education carving out spaces 
for people to say, you know, we're going to prioritize that for a little bit because this is a really important moment. Our students have struggled a lot through this pandemic, and I'm sure students at Cincinnati have as well. It's been hard. But man, if we don't come out of this with you know, being changed, with you know, if we don't think differently, at the, then we've really blown a moment to shape the next generation and to really move things forward. So I would love that kind of like the, the time to really make sure we do the historical work. But I would like to go back to the pre-med people and say, we need to start this earlier because it's going to be really important down the line. And we can't do this work when students are just flipping out about boards and then they're flipping out about residency. Like that's not the time to do deep historical reflection. So I feel for the students, but that's what I would do. Yeah, I, I, you know, imagine if students came into medical school with being well-versed in, you know, basic health policy topics or, or even, you know, philosophy or art or music and having more than just the bio pre-med background. I think, you know, as you said, there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with some of the basic science classes as undergraduates. Um, but we need a diverse perspective here from our from our students and and as you said yeah during medical school it, maybe it's not the most optimal time um, but there's a huge opportunity for that in um, in undergraduate coursework yeah and I, I think that ultimately we're realizing you know that all of these are, are long-haul commitments that um, you know people's worldviews start getting shaped very early I, I just think when we look at the aims we have, of, of ultimately what we want in terms of you know patient care or thinking about population. If we want physicians to become not just great physicians in you know clinic, but leaders in the world, and I don't mean to sound corny. I mean I really mean that. Uh, you know then there, then we need to think about deep thinking. Then we need to think about philosophy and history because that's kind of what we need. You you mentioned this, you know, the just kind of acknowledging that we're in the middle of this pandemic and, and also just like a really kind of striking moment of, of social movements and um, social change. How has things like COVID or the vaccine coming out or even, you know, Black Lives Matter, White Coats for Black Lives, things like that, how has that changed the health policy environment for your medical students? You know, I wish I could say more about that. One of one of the things I'm sad about is that you know COVID has disrupted a lot of these relationships. I don't see my students as much anymore. I mean, some of them I've kept in a lot of touch with, and my teaching online has continued and all of that. But you know, the kind of stuff when you bump into somebody in the hallway, which would now be seen as like a disease vector, right? You know, like I, I miss I miss hearing a little bit about that. That said, you know, I, I participated in some of the Black Lives Matters uh, protests, uh, mobilizations. Many of my students did. Uh, I, you know, I saw them out there, or I saw photos uh, from um, White Coats for Black Lives, and you know, and, and and the College of Osteopathic Medicine at OU was you know pretty pretty well represented in that. I don't have a sense of how it's changing people ultimately. I do know that it has pushed us curricularly uh, to think about, you know, again, I mentioned a case-based curriculum. You know, if you have a case-based curriculum, you need to make sure you get it right when it comes to race, when it comes to disability, when it comes to gender, because that's where historically a lot of this stuff started. That's where you learn you know, sloppy habits of thinking, uh, discriminatory bias. You know, so so I think that that I know that that has happened. 
what I'm hoping is that that there's a generation of students. I mean, you know, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of there are a lot of specifics, but I'm really hoping that students take with the, them from this kind of courage, if I can put it like that. There are lots of forces in American medicine, just in American culture, but you know that that say, oh no, no, be professional. Um, you know, this isn't the time for politics. This isn't the time for justice, right? You know, be a good uh, member of our corporate culture or whatever. And and I think our students are realizing right now that if we are going to get to the next level, they're going to have to risk some of that at some point, or at least take a few chances. And I'm guessing that actually they will be received as leaders instead of troublemakers. That's my hope. But I do think we're at a pretty decisive moment where medical students need to think about courage. Um, I wrote a piece that I ended up posting at Kevin MD just about the kind of Damocles sword of residency programs. I don't know if this happens at Cincinnati. It certainly happens at OU, which is be careful what you say. They're watching, you know, they're watching and you don't want to screw up. You know, you're already so invested in this. You know? and, and I get that. But if that's used to stifle uh, creativity or passion for things that are just and righteous, then then that's got to change. So I, th- those are some of the things that I, I kind of think are, are related to that question. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, even speaking personally, you know, we we started this podcast now just about two years ago, and there are certainly topics that we're passionate about as a team, and there are things that we're interested in, and things that we maybe even want to advocate for. But I think as a team, so far, our conversations have led us to, as you've said, be careful to be mindful of our professional presence because yeah, as you said, residency is this thing that it's always in the background and you're always thinking about it and you don't want to do anything that could possibly affect your chances there. But at the same time, we're kind of acknowledging that, as you said, there needs to be some, some courage. And, um, at the end of the day, um, that's how change happens is, uh, by people actually, instead of just going with the status quo, kind of making a difference. Um, so I think that that's something that we as a podcast team are starting to talk more and more about. Yeah, I, I don't know how to get to that point, but I will say one of the things I would love to do, I would love to see the tables flipped a little bit. You know, I would love to see residency programs have to sell to all you fantastic medical students why you should come to their program. You know, instead of this, you know, Kind of, um, you know, that we have the the pick of the litter, and you know, um, you all have to behave and like do these things. I, I really would love to see that. I would love, for example, for residency programs that are committed to social justice, that are committed to patient centered, population centered care, to have to state that even some kind of like I don't know national standard or something where you know, or a statement where they could sign on and say, "Look, we want you to go." And participate in protest for things that are righteous, right? And to alleviate medical students of some of that anxiety, because I, I all, what I see with so many students is they internalize all of that. They turn off their Facebook uh, or their Twitter or, or their Instagram because they don't want anybody seeing things. When really, what I would love to see is a little bit of a, at least a wink and a nod, saying we're with you. And that would be a radically, you know, that'd be a radical shift in kind of the whole power dynamic of residency, I think. 
there's a, a tangible or a kind of a real world example here. As I was on the interview trail um, this fall, you know, kind of in November election season time, one of the questions that always came up, whether it was one of the resident socials or actually during the interview day itself was, do you have a plan to make sure that your residents get a chance to vote? Hmm. Um, and other than that, I think you can, I think programs that are really thinking about these things, it, it's, it's obvious. Um, and the flip side of that is for me, it was really obvious when a program wasn't, I think that we might be stepping in that direction to some degree, at least when I was on the interview trail for internal medicine, there was a lot of programs that seemed to be actually really thinking hard about these topics. Yeah. And, and my sense is, and this makes a lot of sense for those who know kind of where the political lines tend to get drawn in medicine, but you know, pediatrics and family med and internal med to some degree, maybe OBG, you know, tend to be a bit more open to these kinds of conversations. But then when you start looking at, you know, ortho or, you know, I mean, whatever you, you pick your specialty, like there are kind of like bents to some of these traditions historically. There's also, I mean, it kind of skews with um, the whole salary structure of those worlds as well, uh, which is not surprising. But yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, certainly the the, the people at Cincinnati Children's, um, you know, Nationwide Children's, they've been out in the streets. They've been out in the protests. They take voting seriously. And, and I know quite a few people um, who are you know very politically active. And I think in being politically active, especially when you're a you know, I think of Dr. Ray Bignall, for example, who's a nephrologist at Nationwide Children's. When you see leaders in the field being political, but also responsibly political, speaking carefully but passionately, like that will empower generations of students coming up to say, I can do that too. But we also need to work with them to make sure they get training in how to do that, you know, whether it's speaking or uh, work, you know, working on the writing or social media practice or what have you. Do you think that there are ways to provide more protections for students who are interested in policy and, and specifically in advocacy? Well, I mean, uh, I work at a, a public institution, right? And, um, you know, academic freedom, First Amendment protections, obviously, you know, all of that is um, something that we need to constantly remind ourselves of and what it means. And we frankly need to do education around it. Um, now, the First Amendment doesn't protect you from, you know, consequences of things you say, like you, if you work for a private employer and they don't like what you're saying, um, you know, and, and residency falls into that category in a lot of cases, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I think understanding the law, understanding the constitution, um, taking seriously a tradition of radical free speech. There have been some fantastic examples during COVID, and I'm happy to send some to you if you want to put them up with, with the show, you know, of physicians speaking out, getting in trouble for speaking out, but then the backlash for them getting in trouble being so big that they had to acknowledge that these people were just doing what was right. So, you know, yeah, will you get in trouble for uh, speaking up sometimes? Of course. But, you know, I think that the long game uh, values this and, and, and there, are, there are more people behind you than you realize. Most of them are just afraid to speak up. So they will be there presumably, you know, when, you know, something happens, you know, to support you. But, 
you know, I think we need to take those examples really seriously. And what I, I guess what I'm saying more than anything is to not fall into the trap of just defaulting to a shut up mode. You know, mm-hmm. that's deadly and literally deadly, right? With physicians being willing to be whistleblowers within healthcare systems um, and going through the process and, and trusting in the process is important for patients. It's important for the safety of your patients. So I think it's perfectly consistent with the, you know, the principled aims of medicine. But we are in an environment where, gosh, there's a lot of stuff getting swept under a lot of rugs from the opioid crisis to, you know, some of the decision-making around COVID to racial disparity in medicine. Um, And we need physicians to be part of the unearthing of that. One of the things that I that's been striking to me is since COVID has come and you know changed the environment completely, things like cancer screenings and um, diabetes management and you know just basic health things that were everyday occurrences um, kind of yeah got pushed back. Yeah. And what it, what's going to be the the impact of that? I don't think we even have any idea. But I know that. You know, for instance, why would the number of gallbladder surgeries go down um, during the COVID crisis? Is it that people don't need it as much or is it that people aren't getting what they need? I think there's going to be these lasting impact that we don't really fully appreciate yet. Well, we don't know. You know, just like we've kind of we've we've experienced coronaviruses, but we have learned as we've gone through this one, you know, we've been through all sorts of twists and turns mask usage or understanding transmissibility and you know it's 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 been a real real journey and i think the to the question you're asking one of the big obvious answers is we don't know but we know that for example diseases of despair upticks in drinking um, other forms of addiction just loneliness in general and, and depression leading to all sorts of other different kinds of issues, uh, not just, you know, I mean, deferred care is a, is a big part of it. And clearly we've learned a lot about our healthcare system. You know, obviously we're in here in Ohio and, you know, Dr. Acton got, um, you know, criticized widely from, you know, certain factions within our state and the governor did too for, you know, issuing orders to close things down in various ways and, and healthcare institutions were part of that. And, you know, making decisions about so-called elective or non-medically necessary care, which is the subject of a book that I wrote, actually. I mean, it was an interesting time for me to just yeah. hear people using this language. I mean, elect- elective doesn't mean not important. Exactly. Or, you know, and, 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 but we were trying to make decisions about what to do. And I think most actors in Ohio actually, especially with that piece, did the best they could. Um, but it certainly exposed a lot of the problems with the system. And now we have to, and one of those problems was was preventive care. I mean, people became deathly afraid of going to these places, even when they opened up, whether it's dental care. On my podcast, I had the former, um, the past president of the Ohio Dental Association on, and she was talking about, you know, just what she was seeing. And aside from deferred oral care, which itself, and that's cancer screenings are part of that. Just the number of cracked teeth people had because their anxiety level was through the roof. Mm. So people have lost a lot of teeth in Ohio during the the, the pandemic, and, the, and, the, and then they extend that to everything else. It's a real metaphor for just what. But we're starting to pick those pieces up. And I went to my doctor yesterday. Um, 
my primary care doctor, and they were amazing. Shout out to the people at Central Ohio Primary Care. <laughs> they were really good, you know, but it was it was a weird environment too, very, you know, controlled. And but, you know, I didn't feel at risk for a second. And okay. um, I'm glad I went. Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned your podcast. I actually wanted to ask you about that. Can you talk a little bit more about Prognosis Ohio? Yeah, sure. So it's something I've always wanted to do. You know, I have a um before I became a wonky, nerdy, academic type. I was a musician. I did audio engineering. Um, I went to an audio engineering program back on Long Island where I, I grew up. And you know, I've always interest in, you know, enjoyed having conversations with people. I've always enjoyed the kind of audio medium. When podcasts became popular, part of me got super excited because you know I'm not a big TV person. I, I grew up with the radio and podcasts just seems like a different kind of radio. So I think it's a little bit of a, a harken back to something that I, I really enjoy. And also, you know, I don't feel like people need to see my face. Um, I, I, not that I have a great voice either, but um, no, but so, yeah, I decided to do this. I mean, I, having these conversations about health and healthcare, um, I had developed a relationship with the folks at WCBE, which is one of our Central Ohio um, NPR affiliates, and they support the show by helping to promote it. Um, and the goal was really simple. It's to talk about health and healthcare here in Ohio. It's one of the reasons I reached out to you because I would, I think that like, I like, you know, everybody wants to do this like national, global, everybody is the more, the, the more listeners, the better. There's something really important to me about just being here in our state, having these conversations just in Ohio. I mean, I have enough guests to talk to for the rest of my life because there are amazing, interesting, wacky, passionate <laughs> smart people at every, every part of our state. So that's really, you know, I interview a different person each um, episode, every other week thereabouts during COVID, it became every week for a while because I was, you know, just, there was just so much to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, and I work on it, uh, you know, on, on weekends and in the spaces, it's not part of my formal job at all, but I do hope uh, I take seriously. I'm employed by a public university and I feel like we privileged academics have a role to be involved in public conversations about issues in health and healthcare. Yeah, I, I was curious to hear how does it fit into the professional and academic work. It sounds like it's it's pretty separate, but but very closely related. Yeah, well, it is separate. I mean, everything today, you know, with social media and with these uh, universities like faculty being out there talking, you know, uh, in in media and. Having your own podcast affiliated with a, an NPR affiliate is not too shabby. I would I would hope that they would look at that and say, "Hey, that's cool." I mean, I'm absolutely I'm not out there saying insane things. Um, although, you know, I guess it depends on your perspective. Um, but for sure, um, developing a platform and that re that's really how I think about it. I, I want, and it and it has become this. I'm pretty proud of this piece. You know, I ask people to come on the show. Or they ask me, uh, they reach out to me, and you know, people don't say no. I mean, they, they they people like talking about their ideas on things, whether they're legislators or scholars. Or I talked to some of my own medical students uh, during COVID just about what it was like, and a recent resident. Uh, that, that's just, it's just some way to keep the conversation moving, and hopefully, that's another piece of us just pushing through this logjam of health outcomes and disparity in the state. 
Well, it's a it's a really exciting project, a, a really excellent podcast, and uh, you know, excellent work on that. Do you have any you know episodes that you think you know students at Cincinnati would be particularly interested in uh, listening for? I mean, it's it's you know, I want to answer that in, I guess in one or one of one or two ways. One is you know, I don't think that students need to listen to more episodes about medical education and all of that. Like you live that world. The question for me, and it's funny, I, I ask students when I do interviews, admissions interviews at OU, I like to, if I have time to ask these students, you know, what are you going to do to be interesting after four years? Because you know, medical school can drive, you know, some of your, you know, your multitudes away because of just the sheer amount of work and the intensity of it. And I think so. One, I, I hope that students develop kind of media diets where they are listening to things that push them a little bit out. You know, so um, you know, like I mentioned that the, the interview with the the uh, on dentistry. Uh, I've I did an interview with the the good folks at Ohio State uh, at the nursing program there uh, about COVID and and some other issues. That was the on the anniversary of uh, Florence Nightingale's birthday. We did that. Um, nice. So, yeah, we try to have some fun like that. Um, you know, I, I tend to talk to, there are a couple of people that I talk to regularly that have been on a few times. Um, and and I, I think that, you know, I would just encourage them to look at some themes. And with health policy, sometimes people think, oh, no, that's like, you know, that's not something I know a lot about. No, that's the whole point. We try to re- make the podcast in a way where you can just plug into some of the conversations. I do have to step back as a host sometimes. Because people, you know, my colleague Lauren Anthes, for example, from the Center for Community Solutions and Ohio University, Lauren is steeped in Medicaid. So, you know, he can easily drop stuff about, you know, matching percentages in Medicaid and like this kind of wonky stuff. And I have to be like, oh, well, well, hold on, you know, um, what is that? I yeah, mean, yeah. for our listeners, you know, but mostly it's pretty down to earth. And, and sometimes we laugh a little bit too. The other thing I'll just mention is I, so I did an episode recently with, um, I, I like to talk to journalists. Um, I think health journalism is something that medical students need to start paying attention to wherever you move, find out who the health journalists are, find out who's covering the beats, um, and just read them, you know, and, and I try to talk to them. And I also like to focus on what nonprofits who are not in medicine are doing people who are working on, you know, housing, um, food security, things like that. So uh, the, the, the podcast uh, website, prognosisohio.com, is decently well uh, categorized and indexed. So hopefully you can find some uh, themes that interest you. Awesome. Well, we will be sure to direct listeners to you and, and have you know links and uh, embeds and stuff in the show notes so that it's uh, ready for the listeners to check out. Great. Great. Well, I, you know, I, I, I just want to say again, I, I I love what you're all doing. The conversations are great. I enjoy listening to your podcast for a number of reasons, but one of them is I sometimes wonder what medical students think about things. I think faculty sometimes sit around being like, you know, what's on their mind? Uh, You know, sometimes we have conversations with them, but one of the nice things about what you're all doing is that you do get into the kind of archaeology or the life of the mind of the medical student. And I think that's really valuable just to, to acknowledge that there are a lot of heady things you're all thinking about. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're going to continue this podcast moving forward, even as people go on to uh, other things. Well, I really appreciate that. Dr. Skinner, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you.